0: to each of you. This is Brian Frazier, and this is Journey to the Stage, episode number 27. This is a special episode of this podcast that's actually been in the works, at least in idea form, for over a year. I'm pleased to welcome back my very first guest, episode one, John Jackson. If you've never heard that conversation, I highly recommend that you go and give it a listen. I've learned a lot about podcasting since then, and I hope I've improved too. But I do enjoy the way that episode turned out, and uh, not bad for my maiden voyage, and John made that easy for me. So if you don't know John Jackson, he's a very talented multi-instrumentalist, producer, rock and roll historian, and he he formerly oversaw Sony Music's Legacy Division, and has recorded and toured and produced with one of my favorite bands, the Jayhawks. Today we're going to be talking about Elvis Presley and focusing specifically on 70s Elvis. So it is my honor to welcome back to The Artist Throne, John Jackson. John, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Brian. Pleasure to be here. It's been a bit. It's been a bit. Not only were you my first guest, but you're my first guest that will be on two different times. So that's pretty cool. And. (laughs) Truthfully, I had planned for you to be the first guest for season one, but then I had an opportunity to chat with Dennis Dykin from the Smithereens, and I couldn't pass that up. So, Smart man. Yeah, it was a great, great conversation. So, John, before we jump into our chat, tell us how you became uh, kind of an Elvis aficionado.
1: I started becoming obsessed with sort of music history, rock music history in particular, in the late 80s early 90s when like box sets and reissues and cd you know sort of project started coming out and i worked at a record store i got a job at a a local record store when i was 15 and so when any um, new box sets or collections or anything like that came out i just had to get it right away with my employee discount and everything so you know that's where i learned about artists like the who and the stones and Jimi hendrix and you know led zeppelin and all people like that so really instead of the music of that time which you know was becoming a little stale you know hair metal and stuff like that uh sort of pre when grunge came into the picture and and sort of americana took back over again Mm -hmm. there was this period where i just was i was only listening to old music and educating myself as much as possible and stuff from the 60s and 70s and and that sort of thing. So uh, I started there. And then um, when I went off to college, I went to Indiana University because it was far away from home. It was Mm -hmm. a big school and they were known for their music school. And I got into the music school, auditioned for, you know, to play violin. Also in the music school they had, they offered rock and roll history courses. They had a couple of them at the time. That was really great for the school because all kids from all over the university the business school the football team everywhere else would come and take these rock and roll history classes they would this the music school would get that tuition credit money yeah so they were like sure offer more and there were a couple of guys who taught them and so um i, I became friendly with with one of them and sort of volunteered to be a teaching assistant or whatever and um, i ended up getting that job about a year later you know, helping with test grading and stuff like that. And then I just became obsessed with it and, and showed up to every class, even though I had already taken the classes. <laughs>
0: um,
1: I, I took the same music of the Beatles class for five semesters in a row because it was like <laughs> nice. seven o'clock at night on Thursdays. And I was like, well, what else am I going to do? I might as well sit around and listen to Beatles music. So That's awesome. um, it was so awesome. Yeah. Glenn Gass and Andy Holland and out at uh, Indiana university uh, sort of, an outcropping of that, I discovered that the, the school, um, had a program where you could design your own major, your own, you know, sort of degree granting program. And so I put one together in rock and roll history and got the, um, I have the world's first bachelor's degree in rock and roll history.
0: That's awesome. Only one person can wear that badge
1: exactly I have proud to but as part of that I had to do a thesis you know work like I had to do a big paper and present in front of a committee and you know similar things you'd have to do for grad school but you know they took this uh, individualized degree program pretty seriously so I chose to do it on Elvis because I was he he really got me interested in, you know, just sort of the cultural weight of what he did in the 50s and, you know, continued throughout his career. I just thought it was so fascinating that I bought every book I could find and it was all pre-internet, of course. And, right. you know, so to do research, you had to actually buy your own materials or go to the wow. library or whatever and, yeah. you know, bought every CD I could find of his stuff. And, a you know, surprisingly limited amount of his career was available at the time. So, you know, it just became this obsession of like, who was this guy? You know, why did everyone love him so much? Mm-hmm. And and I ended up being one of those people.
0: Yeah, well, the idea for this podcast was birthed way back when, when we recorded episode one, you were talking about how you were finally able to work on the Albus catalog when, when you were with Sony and how you were able to specifically focus on, you know, certain areas, certain periods of time in his career. And you began to talk about... Elvis's latter years, and you said something that caught my ear and it caught the ear of others because I had people comment to me and reach out to me about something that you said. And it was the idea of rescuing 70s Elvis. And that kind of planted a seed in my mind. And I remember reaching back out to you at some point, not terribly long after that, and said, man, I would love to explore this and maybe do have you back on. And you were agreeable to that. So what did you mean by... Rescuing '70s Elvis.
1: In my corporate career, um, I I started working at Sony Music's Legacy Recordings, 1998, I guess. You know, at that time, they had Columbia Records catalog, Epic Records catalog. You know, some really great stuff: Dylan and Springsteen and Johnny Cash and all that. But in 2004, uh, Sony and a company called BMG. Uh, who had the RCA catalog, did a corporate merger thing. And so Legacy kind of became the catalog division of RCA records as well. And that with that came the Elvis catalog. So it was sort of perfect for me to jump in and say, okay, uh, this is something I've been training for for a while. And, you know, I got to know Ernst Jorgensen and Roger Seaman, who were the you know, had been doing Elvis reissues since the nineties, they were very kind to allow me to have some input and, you know, sort of plan some stuff. And, and at that time we were coming up on like, what would be the 40th anniversary of, uh, you know, the 68 comeback special, the 69 Memphis sessions, the, and then into the seventies. So we sort of planned this whole 40th anniversary program of that run. Mm-hmm. So uh, it worked out well, and it was also, you know, the, the, the 50s had been done kind of to death. The 60s had been explored quite a bit, and really it was the 70s that was this lone outpost of, of untapped material. So my question was, is why don't we explore that and take the idea of 70s Elvis, which at that point had been reduced to he does the 68 comeback special You know, he records in Memphis, Suspicious Minds and In the Ghetto and Don't Cry Daddy and that stuff. And then he goes on tour, does the Aloha from Hawaii special, Gets Fat and Dies. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the story, the shorthand story. And it's it's ironic that the more Elvis has been focused on over time, you know, with great books written or great documentaries or, you know, whatever, um, the story also at the same time just gets shorter and shorter and shorter. So you end up with this very shorthand version of what happened, including with the fifties. You know, I mean, a lot of people think, Oh, he was on sun records and then RCA records. And then he was on the Ed Sullivan show and, you know, film from the waist up. And it's like, no, 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 no. The Ed Sullivan show was at the end of 56. He was on TV like seven times before that and really made the controversy and became Elvis. Before, way before he was ever on at Sullivan, so, and that was the 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 concept with the seventies was you know what why not help to tell the story of what actually happened over time, yeah. and take our time and and do deep dives into you know different years and different mm-hmm. um, events and that sort of thing and um, and help to tell that story, which is which is what we did.
0: Well, it's unfortunate because history, you're right, it does have a way of of creating a shorthand narrative that can be boiled down to a sentence, but it ends up leaving so much out. And unfortunately with Elvis, he's become almost this caricature, you know, with the movie coming out and there being so much focus on, I think it's very timely to kind of dispel some of those things. So to kind of work our way to that, just briefly, most people, I think as you and I talked uh, over the weekend, divide Elvis's career kind of in three segments. Like there's early Elvis, then there's movie Elvis, and then 70s Elvis. Is that fairly accurate, or how would you correct me on that?
1: No, that's that's the way most people would would approach it, you know, sort of sun sessions through yeah. going to into the Army. Then it's coming back from the Army until basically the comeback special which is Mm -hmm. kind of the end of the movie period and also the beginning of the 70s period. So it's a very interesting event in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah. And then, you know, from 69, where he goes to play in Vegas again in front of people through 77, that sort of gets lumped as one period of his life when, you know, it was really six or seven different, things that he was doing at that time including still making amazing records mm-hmm. recording ridiculous you know uh, performances and you know playing more shows than uh, m- most people did throughout the entire 70s even though he right. made it to 77 I mean he was he was the top grossing in terms of tickets uh, artist of the entire 1970s mm-hmm. you know it's not Led Zeppelin it's not the Stones it's not yeah. you know it was Elvis because he was doing arenas from the from the get-go yeah. And he was playing, you know, he was playing two shows a day, you know, a couple wow. of days a week. And then he was playing every other night. So it's like, you know, these runs that you see on paper, you know, you go, how, did, how is this even possible that someone right. could put their, their energy into this? And one of my favorite uh, pieces of footage of all time is in, in the movie Elvis on Tour. And he's playing in, um, I think it's in Florida, and, you know, it's the end of the concert and he does the big finale and they put the cape on him and they, and they rush him off the stage and he's sweating and, right. you know, they, they put him in the car and this is all filmed and then the car leaves and then there's a camera guy in the car because it's, they were making a movie and, and they're pulling out of the place and they're still under the arena and he's got the towel around his neck and the sunglasses on and they pull out of the arena and they're talking. And once they get out of the arena, you realize it's still daytime. So the concert that you just saw was like the afternoon matinee. Now he needs to go back to the hotel, get prepared and do it all over again that night. And people don't do that anymore. I mean, people haven't done that for years, but that was the the sort of mindset that he was in was you do two shows a day. You do as many shows as you can. You show up, you, you know, you give it a hundred percent every time. And that's what he did hundreds and hundreds of times throughout the, throughout the decade.
0: Now, when he, wrapped up kind of the movie segment of his career what did he want to do what what itch was he trying to scratch you think as he left hollywood and and embarked on what would obviously we know or would be kind of the last several years of his career what what was he wanting to accomplish
1: well he wanted to be in front of people i mean his whole thing was performing you know Mm -hmm. live music for an audience of people and when he stopped doing it, you know, basically in 58, um, you know, he... Th- that was a time where live concerts... Yeah, I mean, you have to remember that putting Elvis into context of, of what live concerts were in the 1950s, you know, there were no PA systems to speak of. You know, guitar amplifiers were still relatively a new thing. Mm-hmm. Microphones and, you know, public address... Uh, speakers were you know just be, beginning to be a thing so to play you know the fairgrounds or a you know a tented sort of uh hootenanny somewhere or even you know in 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 the a place like the Ryman auditorium where he played one time he, he, no one could hear anything there was no um there was no sense of of my performance is going out to this crowd well which is part of why he developed his the persona and the moves and the dancing and the Mm -hmm. you know how he would emphasize certain things so that the crowd would understand what he was doing you know and then by the time he got back from the army it had only gotten worse for people i mean you look at like you know even the beatles performing at shea stadium in 1965 which is a movie you can see you know, it's these tiny PA speakers. Nobody right. could hear what they were doing. They couldn't hear what they were doing, and right. they stopped playing live shows in 66. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really until, like, Woodstock, you know, and and those, some of those big festivals where people were engineering mm-hmm. bespoke, uh, uh, you know, sound reinforcement systems that, like, people started to be able to do that. And, you know, Marshall Amps became a thing in, you know, 68, 67, 68, something like that, and... You know, people like Hendrix could start to play louder and it could be right. louder and you could play to more people. So it's it's not surprising that he didn't want to play live in the 60s or wanted to do it less because it just wasn't feasible. You know, and then at the end of the decade, they they figured out a way to make it make it OK for him to do it. So, so they, they figured out a new way to do it, which was the Vegas residency.
0: Yeah. Now you and I, when when we were doing, it, we had our little prep call. We were talking about the Colonel. We spent a good amount of time talking about him. And it, for those who have seen the movie or maybe seen other specials, the Colonel is often portrayed in a in a pretty negative light. And even though I I loved the movie, I know it has a perspective. It doesn't make the Colonel look good at, at all, really. And and you know, people are complex. He had his own motivations and. And things like that and things that he wanted to accomplish but you know based on your research how should we properly view the colonel and his relationship and what he did in albus's trajectory i mean there's no doubt that the colonel you know
1: did bad things you know and and the movie gets some of that right but doesn't Mm -hmm. choose to focus at all on the positive part of the story which starts in the in the earliest days i mean as soon as he kind of said okay this elvis guy has something it, it wasn't that elvis couldn't have gotten a record deal you know uh you know after sun was sort of the, the Sun singles were regionally successful and he had management and representation and probably could have gotten signed somewhere else you know even though the kind of music he was making was still a very regional music Um, it was not a nationally popular kind of music yet, Mm -hmm. but the Colonel, you know, who took him to RCA records, who he knew from managing Hank snow, you know, he didn't just sign him to a record deal. He signed him to what amounts to kind of a multimedia deal. You know, it was, it was releasing music, Mm -hmm. but also you have to guarantee him performances on television. Which in nineteen fifty, you know, when he just signs the RCA contract in November of fifty five, that no one did that. There was no guarantee you would be on television. And in fact a lot of people didn't want to be on television back then. It was it was, you know, stressful and, you know, all all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. to have him appear on the Dorsey Brothers Stage show, which he does in January of fifty six, again, you know, a full eight months before he was ever on Ed Sullivan. Wow. and he's on i think 5 times really yeah and it's you know you can look at it on youtube or whatever but mm-hmm. you know he get comes on and does you know flip flop and fly and he does money honey and he does you know the songs that would be on his first record but but he did those appearances before the first rca record came out and before heartbreak hotel right. came out wow. so okay. the genius of the colonel was let's introduce this guy to everybody at the same time in the country you know, show him for what he looked like. Because with Elvis, hearing his music is one thing, but seeing him as a person is a whole other thing. Right. And when you marry the two things together, you sort of go, oh, I see why he is still the most famous person kind of to ever live on earth. And so the Colonel knew that. And for him to, to have made that move and to kind of stake his reputation and career on the fact that he would be good on television and that that would be a good thing for RCA records. That was visionary. Nobody was doing that at the time. There's examples through the whole career where the Colonel is very forward thinking, is very big, he thinks big. And mm-hmm. you know, other managers would not have put their client, you know, had the foresight to do that or had the leverage or had the tenacity to right. to demand these things yeah. for their artists.
0: Well, we talked about three things The residency he had set up at the International, the way he negotiated for his movies, and then the satellite broadcast. Like, touch on those three things that really the colonel really drove. Well, so so starting with the movies in the 60s, right?
1: So Elvis had done four movies before he went to the Army, all of which are... Very good movies, if you haven't seen them. Mm-hmm. Love Me Tender and Jailhouse Rock and King oh, yeah. Creole and Loving You. And, you know, so when he comes back from the Army, when or, or when he's going to come back from the Army, the colonel is thinking the entire time of like, okay, how am I going to bring this guy back? What am mm-hmm. I going to do? Because rock and roll, the sort of fundamental version of rock and roll, Chuck Berry and Buddy Holly and Little Richard and everything, had sort of died out. Right. You know, Chuck Berry had been put in prison, Buddy Ollie was dead, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Little Richard, you know, had found his religious side, and Elvis was off to the army. So that period of rebellious, you know, James Dean was dead, you know, it was a whole thing of like that furious flash-in-the-pan rock-and-roll thing had kind of come and it had gone. Right. So while he's in Germany the colonel is thinking what do i what do i do to bring this guy back and uh, he had had him record a bunch of music before he left so he was releasing things as he was gone he, one a, another genius thing was there was a a record that they put out while he was in germany called a date with elvis which had you know great songs that were in the can and in the 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 actual album was a fold out calendar that had the date on it circled of when elvis would come back from the army is that Carnival Barker thing to do? Sure. You know, but was it effective? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, and so when he came back, there was this anticipation of, well, oh, what is he going to do next? What's he going to do next? So, you know, the colonel had the, the sessions for Elvis's back, at least thought of, you know, and he was going to start making more adult music and, uh, you know, singing more and that sort of thing. But he also had these movie contracts lined up where Elvis was going to... Um, star in a certain number of movies and he actually would own half of the ip for those movies wow so there's a good 20 some films where elvis owns the movie along with the studio which there's no other actors
0: that was unheard of at that time right absolutely yeah and and you know the the move
1: the movie business in the 60s when it was like kind of just getting into real color as a general release kind of a thing. Theaters were getting more sophisticated. A lot of the movies then were very escapist, playful. You know, there's a lot of movies about going to the beach. There was a lot right. of movies about. So again when you take Elvis's movies out of that context and watch them individually you would, you might say, oh, some of these are terrible. But if you watch them alongside of what else was in movie theaters at that time you know the godfather hadn't come out
0: yet sure right they were movies of their time
1: exactly so you know the the idea of we go to the movies now because those kids had grown up it was like you don't watch tv at home anymore with your parents you now go to the movie theater and drive your car and maybe listen to you know a little bit more sophisticated music Mm -hmm. so putting him into hollywood was, you know, it, it accomplished several things, which was one, it got him a lot of money. Elvis made a ton of money on those pictures. It sort of really reduced the amount he had to work for that money because they right. said, if do you want to work two weeks for this movie in, you know, Hawaii or Cal- Southern mm-hmm. California and make With more money little. than you would, yeah, on the road all year? Uh, sure, that'd be great. You know, and <laughs> Elvis's one request was, can I also make movies where I actually act? Yeah. And, you know, don't have to sing or lip sync or whatever. And the colonel said, sure. So they made a couple of those movies and those didn't do as well. Mm-hmm. So the colonel said, well, at least I tried. You right. know, we, we made this other contract for you to do these movies. They didn't do as well. Let's go back to doing this kind. And Elvis said, OK, that seems to make sense. The number of films that he made, you know, between 62, 63 and 66 is is unbelievable. It kept him visible to have a national nationally open movie every six months wow. kept him much more relevant sure. than like, oh, I'm playing, you know, Jacksonville, Florida this Thursday night for those, you know, five thousand people who are gonna come see me or something. Right, right. So it for very little work on your client's part, maximum revenue and, you know, uh f- future earnings for your artist mm-hmm. that is what a manager is supposed to do so in that sense you know in that example of the movies he did exactly what he should have done
0: and and maybe he did have his own motivations you know it's pretty well documented he had um, some gambling issues and, and had significant amounts of debt so you know obviously he had negotiated a 50 percent take and i've heard people comment on that about that's just highway robbery, and you know he's a thief and all this and that. But I mentioned to you earlier that I watched an interview with with Priscilla Presley, and she said, "Well, hold on a second. Elvis was very, very much okay with that deal, and was very clear-eyed. And that, you know they reestablished that deal, fifty percent, and Elvis was happy with that. So, in my mind, if Elvis was good with that, then." Everyone else should be, too.
1: Absolutely. Again, it's so early and people only look at it in retrospect Mm -hmm. that, you know, the standard manager percentage of, you know, which is 15%, sometimes 20%, you know, for for somebody, you know, even the biggest managers today, uh, 50% isn't all that you know, much more than that. And to have somebody that's working that hard for you, right? Because he didn't make anything. If Elvis didn't make anything, 50% Mm -hmm. of nothing is nothing. So that's right. You know, to go for the biggest deals, to go for the biggest, um, you know, paychecks for the work, that was Mm -hmm. his job. And sure, you know, maybe did he take more than, you know, other managers might take, but he also, opened up more opportunity, I think, than other managers would have. You know, Bill yeah. Graham didn't exist yet. You know, uh, people like that weren't, they learned from the Colonel and made that secondary, uh, you know, those, all those great 60s and 70s managers, the sort of the classic rock era, mm-hmm. learned everything from the Colonel and took it to the next step.
0: Right, well, even when Elvis wanted to tour more and get out of the country, and for various reasons the Colonel could not, or the colonel said, we can basically take you to the world. We'll do this broadcast, which was really cutting edge. I mean, that technology, that was like one of the first pay-per-view things that existed. And it made an incredible amount of money for Elvis, right?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, you mentioned that. I mean, the, as far back as you know, the early '70s, particularly in a couple of different press conferences, Elvis says, "Oh, I, I'd like to play in the UK. I'd love to play mm-hmm. in Japan. I'd love to play in Germany and you know other parts of Europe." Right. And he did want to do that. And we only, you know, as 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 the public uh, found out later that the Colonel would never allow that because he couldn't travel internationally right. and come back into the states that was the way that that was but if again if you think about it from a management artist perspective you're going to send your artist over to you know different countries where there's different tax structures and payments and currencies and you know licenses to work and places where Local crews and sound and lighting and everything is just different all the time. And you're going to send your guy out on a bus all over Europe to play to, you know, five ten thousand 10,000 people a night, get in the bus, go do it again the next day. Mm -hmm. Everyone's getting sick. Everyone's getting tired. You know, people are away from home. They don't like it. So you could do that. Or he could have left it. He could have just said, sorry, Elvis, you can't do uh, Europe, but let's do, you know, the Southwest again. Okay. Right. Or he goes, Well, wait a second, because you do have fans all over the world. How about instead of playing 200 shows in different territories, why don't you play one show? We'll make it exotic. We'll send you to Hawaii, still in the United States, and we'll broadcast it to everyone on Earth at the same time. How about that? World's first satellite broadcast. Wow. So, you know, techno- technologically, for him to go, I want to do that. And. For, you know, the the networks all over the world who were going to pick it up on satellite to go, okay, fine. And, you know, ironically, the U.S. was the only territory that did not get it live. Really? We had to wait like two months. Well, it was the same night as the Super Bowl that year. Oh, wow. Okay. So it, it didn't air in the States until April, the beginning of April of 73. So over a billion people saw that. And, you know, it was the same thing with the Vegas residencies. Mm-hmm. You know, do do I want to send my guy out in a bus or, you know, planes? He didn't have his own planes until 75. So, you know, do, do I want to send him out in a bus with a crew? You know, it could break down. It could, you know, all kinds of weird things happen on the road. Or do I want to put them in one place, have it tuned perfectly to the band and the singer mm-hmm. and... You know, everything looks right, everything feels right, sounds right, and make everybody come to me. What's what's the better move for the yeah. artist? And you know, at at the time, Vegas wasn't what we now know of as Vegas. There were there were several hotels, but it was mm-hmm. really like a couple of blocks on that strip. You know, when people think about Vegas in sixty nine, you know, you watch the go watch the original version of Ocean's Eleven with oh, Sinatra yes. and Dean Martin and mm-hmm. Sammy Davis Jr. and everything. And the entire cr- premise of that film is that they were going to take out the power in Las Vegas by cutting off one telephone pole. There was wow. one telephone pole <laughs> that if they disconnected it, the entire city didn't have power for 30 minutes or whatever to, to do their heist. So mm-hmm. it was a very small town at the mm-hmm. time. And, you know, they built this hotel just for Elvis to come, basically the international. You know, he was signed as a uh, uh, anchor Act for them, right. uh, you know. And there's pictures of him there signing his contract while there's still construction and wearing a hard hat and everything. <laughs> and it was big news.
0: Let's focus on the music that Elvis was making during this period. Really, some of his some of his greatest stuff came out during the 70s. And you know, kind of going back to what you had said a little earlier, his audience was a little older. So while he could still play, you know, "Hound Dog" and some of these songs live. He couldn't record that those songs anymore that was part of the past musical tastes had changed but let's focus on some of the music that he was making he went back to his roots a little bit what would you say about about that period the songs that he was wanting to record
1: well he had really discovered his voice i mean when starting when he was in the army and you know throughout the 60s he had more time to practice and particularly Mm -hmm. after he met charlie hodge who was his great you know, sort of vocal sparring partner. And, and he had such great respect for Charlie and his voice. You know, he really started doing these huge emotional ballads, which were very important to him. I mean, he was a huge fan of Dean Martin and Mario Lanza and people like that. And, and so when he was able to open up his voice and his power and do these huge, you know, kind of ballads, I think that's sort of when we get that 70s Elvis. Mm-hmm. Starting with the 68 Comeback Special where he's getting, you know, better material written um, just for him. And and he's able to sort of showcase, you know, how the bombastic nature of, you know, where he had taken his voice. I think you you start to see the material rise to that occasion as well. Yeah. So, you know, when you talk about If I Can Dream or, you know, even like a song like How the Web Was Woven, which is on the That's the Way It Is album. I mean, that's unbelievable vocal performance and um they are songs that he was familiar with or being pitched or he was able to carry with this sort of new version of his voice and and particularly live i mean if you just go watch that's the way it is um the concert film and you can see like that's really where he was putting his heart into was he was sure he was doing poke salad annie and he was doing suspicious minds and stuff like that Mm -hmm. but really it was you know the breakdowns of those songs and when he could really you know get after it with his voice that was where you can tell he's the most comfortable
0: i was listening to uh, just last night as i was prepping a song that elvis sang i think in 1970 one that my step uncle hank wrote make the world go away and it really was the first time that i focused on elvis's delivery on that song you hear the strength in his voice. He belted that song and it sounds so beautiful. But this is really the first time I said, wow, Elvis really did have a strong voice. I've always loved his voice, but there's so much power in his delivery, it really struck me. It's a great, great song. Um, obviously some some big hits came out, Suspicious Minds. What are what are some others that Elvis really, really loved and was, you know, wanting to put out in that period? It's 69 is when he sort of gets
1: back in touch with you know sort of better material and, mm-hmm. and various people claim credit for it, but he stopped uh, listening to his own publishing company who oh, okay. you know would insist that in order for Elvis to record a song, which will, a lot of the movie songs, you know you'd need to give him a piece of that re, you know list him as a writer or at least sign it with our publishing company oh, okay. and so in 6869 when he starts to hear artists more like uh, you know Neil Diamond or even the BGs you know he does words by the BGs, you know Dylan, people like that he. You know he sort of started going well the what i'm saying is as important as how i'm saying it so mm-hmm. let me focus in on on songs that have stories songs that have words that are that resonate with me uh, and particularly through the end of 72 when he's going through his divorce with priscilla you know and he's doing songs like separate ways or even yeah. he was the first person to, to really cut always on my mind way before willie did songs like that that he was stretching to to emote his feelings through because he wasn't a writer you know elvis never wrote right. a song so he would find songs that said what he thought mm-hmm. and or and and he would sing the heck out of them so yeah. you know that's really that that seven six 68 69 70, and 71 are really those periods where he's you know focusing on the material and some of those sets that we did while i was at sony you know it's like every take of every song it's like seven cds of the you know complete 1970 sessions and it's every single take is uh, breathtaking
0: wow. it's
1: amazing what he was doing there so i've heard a story a bunch lately that dolly parton wanted him to record the song i will always love you which oh, really? she wrote in 74 i think yeah same day as she wrote jolene So she wanted him to record that. And she said he didn't because he demanded publishing on it. That doesn't hold up because he didn't Mm -hmm. demand publishing when he recorded, you know, words or a Bob Dylan song or a Neil Diamond song or whatever. You know, he's he he wasn't a demand or Mac Davis or what have you. Mm -hmm. But um, so, you know, it doesn't really hold up because he was for a while going out and saying what what just what are the best songs? What songs mean the most to me? to do in shows and to record in the studio. Yeah. You know, when he did Bridge Over Troubled Water, for instance, I mean, those performances are just outstanding. Yeah, you've lost that loving feeling or, you know, you don't have to say you love me by, you know, originally done by Dusty Springfield. It's like, these are just fantastic, fantastic performances. And if this was any other artist that just did that part of the career, that would be legendary. But because... He's the same guy that did Heartbreak Hotel and Jailhouse Rock. It's like people can't – those things can't exist at the same time for a lot of people. So it gets dismissed, you know, and Mm -hmm. and people see 68 Comeback Special, high Highlight, Memphis Sessions, you know, Suspicious Minds is his last number one hit, and then it sort of goes, you know, downhill from there. And it's like, no, 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 it was all great. It was all great. Even the Jungle Room Sessions, which we did – a whole package on, you know, from 76 and 77. And I actually wrote the liner notes for that package, you know, the pitch on that was always, oh, wasn't he this sort of pathetic Howard Hughes recluse, you know, who insisted on recording at home because he didn't want to get out of his jammies or something. And it's like, no, he felt comfortable at home. Mm -hmm. All of the Memphis recording studios had basically shut down at that point. You know, stacks went out of business in 76 son you know was no longer i guess you know there were a couple ardent or something he might have gone to but he's just said forget it let's just make my living room into a recording studio and i'll get all the guys and we'll just do it here and they did and it's like my whole thing was when the rolling stones decided to turn a house into a recording studio in 72 Mm -hmm. you know and do exile on main street everyone thinks that's the best idea of all time but when Elvis does it, it's like, oh, isn't he just this sad, you know, bloated uh, has-been? And it's like, no, 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 you're not understanding right. what he was trying to do.
0: When we think of 70s Elvis, the, the caricature Elvis, you know, he's kind of known for the white jumpsuit. But as we chatted about earlier, there's there was a purpose beyond the fashion. Tell us a little bit about that, because it kind of might help to dispel... That perception of of that uh, that style of clothing he was wearing on stage.
1: Well, so the jumpsuits were really developed for two reasons. One was comfort. You know, he didn't want to wear pants and a shirt because mm-hmm. they would bunch, they would come untucked, they would, you know. So he was looking at you know sort of karate type outfits that he was really into that were one piece, you know, with a with a exterior belt that sort of thing, so that it would be more flattering basically to wear fine that's one part but then the other part is you know they they were never meant to be seen from three feet away five feet away even 10 feet away they were designed so that the guy sitting in the absolute back of the hockey arena you Mm -hmm. know the 400 section way up in the top could look down at the stage which at the time was only i don't know four-feet-high concert stages. This wasn't like Springsteen at Madison Square Garden with, you know, giant screens and, you know, ramps and fans. And, you know, this was like basically a a platform that Mm -hmm. the band would play on, a tiny curtain behind them, no screens, no nothing. So so he wanted to be able to be seen Mm -hmm. from... 200 feet away whatever whatever it is and you know when the one spotlight that the arena had would shine on him you could tell exactly he's the one in, he's got the white it's sparkly everybody yep. else is wearing you know navy so they sort of recede and you know the, the all of the stuff with the giant collars and the sideburns and the, the hair all of that was like basically stage makeup so that people mm-hmm. from far away could see him moving see him singing see him doing his thing and the fact that all we have left are pictures, you know, a lot of great pictures by Ed Banja, who took a lot of the album covers, um, was the Colonel's nephew. You were never meant to be that close to him. Basically, right. <laughs> it was for the everyman who, you know, was way in the way in the back that uh, that those ju- that those jumpsuits were were uh, were designed for.
0: Well, and it makes a lot of sense because they had lots of mirrors and they were rejeweled, and so when that spotlight would hit, it would cast light. And, you know, a lot of times there was fringe and there were the capes and all of that stuff. I would imagine accentuated every movement really to create a visual spectacle. When you're right, we're so used to going to concerts where you've got the screen projected up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, if that didn't exist, you make the guy larger than life by making him very obvious. So that makes a lot of sense. And, yeah. Um, Do you see parallels between Elvis's life and Michael Jackson's? I I was thinking about that this morning. Have you ever considered that before?
1: Well, sure. I mean, it's it's a fame thing, and you know, there's a handful of people, those two included, who have ever been the world's most famous person. To be driven to be that, but then also to be that talented and good to be that is is something that only comes along once maybe a generation, maybe. Mm-hmm. And to have material that stands up over time and contributes something to the larger culture while you're doing it. Yeah. Is is something that you don't we don't really see. So yeah, there's there's natural parallels of, you know, working that hard to be
0: that mm-hmm. good from a very early age. There are parallels, you're right. For anyone to reach that level And they they both died way too young. I mean Michael was think 50 Nelvis was what 41 42 when he passed 42 yeah yeah
1: well you know they both got caught up prescription medication that was Mm -hmm. not good for them so did prince so did you know a lot of people ended up you know relying on things for things like pain or sleeping or basically the pressures of being that person it's a tough thing to be famous and it's a really tough thing to be that famous No, none of us can understand. And like literally no one on earth can understand that.
0: Yeah. And how isolating that could be. And, you know, it's interesting because I think they, they both like to spend, they both Michael Jackson and Elvis spent a ton of money. You know, that's obviously one of the things, at least in the film they show was a motivator. he had to keep making money because he kept spending a lot, a lot of money, which of course makes, makes sense. Did you end up seeing the movie? I can't remember we, when we talked over the weekend. What did you think? What, what's your take on it? Uh, I mean, it's it's something to see, and everyone should see it.
1: Uh, and But, you know, for as much as it le- gives you a story, it leaves out, you know, ten times more. So sure. to me, I say see the story, get in, see the movie, get interested in Elvis, but then go to Spotify or Apple Music or wherever and just start listening. I mean, it's all available now, you know, and it's all like they say don't cost nothing so you may as well and it's uh it's really what he left us was is is you know it, you're not going to see somebody like that again i don't think
0: i think you could be right in the end john how how should we view 70s Elvis? and that's maybe in a more accurate way than the caricature what should what should our lasting impression of Elvis be
1: I mean, I think it's, he was always trying, you know, I think that's, that's, that's the thing to take away. I mean, just because music in general had moved on from his style, his sensibilities, I don't think that we should discount, you know, the art that he was making. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, just like Picasso or, you know, any great artist, it's like, you know, there's certain periods of his life that are well-known other periods that are not so well-known different mediums that might be known and well-known so i think it's it's really just that he was always he wouldn't he never wasn't elvis you know and if you like any of it you'll like all of it um and you know he was always putting everything into it that he that he could because that's all he knew how to do
0: definitely a hard worker we're gonna put together. I'll, I'll do this with some guidance from you. But when we, rele- we release this episode, I'll have a link to a, a, a Spotify playlist that has some of the some of the best of Elvis from the '70s. So
1: yeah, it'd be great.
0: People can check the uh, the episode show notes for that, and we'll do that. So John, before we go, I want to talk about what you've been up to. I know that uh, you're not with Sony Music anymore. You left them. So tell us tell us what you're doing.
1: Uh, lots of stuff.
0: I know you've been producing you've produced a few projects within the last year right yep producing
1: records you know a lot of things that working for a big giant company don't really afford you the luxury of doing um as much as you'd like so yeah producing records i just finished um great record with trapper shep uh, me and pat sansone from wilco produced that record and
0: nice in fact i think i've told you i've got trapper coming on in the spring so we'll be oh there you we'll go. be talking Perfect. about that album
1: Yeah, but I also, you know, I'm doing work for artists. I work with Billy Joel's team on a bunch of archiving stuff, and we just have a reimagined, recut, remix of his Yankee Stadium concert from 1990. Yeah, it's in theaters this Sunday. Cool. Uh, And then on Blu-ray and live album uh, in November. Yeah, working with, like, the Bon Scott estate from ACDC. Yeah, doing a lot of work with uh, Roseanne Cash. Uh, Steve Perry from Journey, you know, and just sort of doing what I've always done, which is sort of embracing the history, Mm -hmm. taking old things, making new things out of them, and and advocating on behalf of the artists. So
0: that's the fun part. That is super cool. And we can't leave before we talk about your wife's book. Give us a a plug for that, because your wife wrote (laughs) a, a children's book What's the name, and, and where can people get it? Well, she's
1: got a couple of books out. The most recent okay. one is called The Rhino Suit, and her her, uh, her name is Coulter Jackson. And it's about a girl who, because she has too many feelings and you know is, is always overwhelmed by the, the way life is, she builds a, a an actual suit that looks like a rhinoceros, and she gets inside of it and goes around. And only when she realizes that she can't really feel anything anymore does she understand that you have to take the good with the bad. So you can yeah. get it on Amazon. Just look up Coulter Jackson. Very and, cool. Uh, yeah, it's uh, available. I highly recommend it.
0: Yeah, well, that's super cool. In fact, we'll, I'll put a, an Amazon link at the bottom of the show notes if people want to check that out. Awesome. You know, John, Thank as you. I was preparing for this podcast, I thought back to that very first episode when you joined me. And really, I had no idea what I was doing and although I'm very happy with the way that episode turned out but what has stuck with me from that is how encouraging you were to me. And when I listened back to that, you shared some very kind and encouraging words with me at the end. And I really appreciate that. I appreciate you taking an invitation from somebody you didn't know and, and for joining me. And really, that started something that I have come to absolutely love as, as being a podcaster. So I appreciate you. I've, I appreciate the friendship that we've developed over that time. And um, I'm so grateful you joined me today, John
1: well you have two things going for you you're a very kind person and that comes through in your demeanor while you're talking to someone and you do your homework you know and those are two things that uh, you can't fake and I've, t- I've listened to a lot of podcasts where you know the hosts are just you know some windbag or you know <laughs> don't really know who or what they're talking about so you know as long as you keep that up you know I think you'll, you're doing great well
0: thank you i I appreciate your encouragement and uh, appreciate you very much and thank you all for tuning into the special edition of journey to the stage i i hope you've enjoyed this chat as much as i have and if so share it with your with your friends with the elvis fan that you have in your life so keep your bags packed and join us on our next journey to the stage that's a wrap thanks brian i appreciate it buddy